I'm delighted now to welcome Ludmil Alexandrov. He's Oppenheimer Fellow in Theoretical Biology and Biophysics at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And we're here to talk about causes of cancer. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Now, we all know that, for example, cigarette smoking causes cancer, causes lung cancer. It's one thing to know that, it causes cancer, but it's another thing to understand why. And that's what you're looking at. What do we know so far? How do we know it? So when it comes to cigarettes, to tobacco cigarettes and lung cancer, we have very, very clear and very strong evidence that they cause uh, cancer. And I should say, cigarette smoking doesn't only cause lung cancer, it causes at least another 17 different types of cancer. And it causes things such as stomach, rectal, cervical, ovarian, etc. Uh, the mechanisms by which smoking causes these different types of cancers are various. In lung cancer, you have direct damage of the tobacco carcinogens. So every cigarette that one smokes has more than 7,000 chemicals. And from these 7,000 chemicals, more than 70 have been classified as known carcinogens. So they are known to cause cancer, at least in animal models. And when you inhale this witch brew of different chemicals, some of them actually go inside of the cells. They actually go inside of the nucleus of the cell and they bind to DNA. So they attach themselves to DNA. They distort the double helix. And if they don't get repaired, they're going to cause mutations. Now, if these mutations fall in the right genes, you can get cancer. You can get lung cancer or you can get esophageal cancer or all kinds of different types of human cancer. How does the body, when these kinds of substances go into the cell, how does the body start fighting? Like it knows that there's something here that's very bad. So there's different types of responses that the body has. One type of response is on the, on the level of the actual organism, trying to, uh, to clean up the, the deposit of these carcinogens in the lung. But there is actually a whole defense system that's inside every single cell. There is a whole uh, set of defense mechanisms which constantly repair damage that's coming from the outside. So in the moment these substances go inside of the cell or in, and they, they attach themselves to DNA, the cell activates repair pathways and these repair pathways just remove them. Now they're very, very efficient. Uh, you can get hundreds of thousands of those damages and usually only a handful, probably less than 10, will actually become mutations. But still, if you smoke a lot and if you accumulate a lot of these damages, eventually this, they will result in mutations, which may result in cancer. So these are mechanisms within the cell that are sort of like the cell police that are That's correct. Yeah. going around and saying, uh, you don't belong here. And yeah. You've done some damage and we're going to repair that damage. Yeah. Now, when does that fail and why? I mean, is it you know, aging, I mean... So, so there is the aging component. The cell has multiple and some of them redundant mechanisms to repair this damage. But it's possible just because it's accumulating that it's going to actually disable it. So it's possible one of those unrepaired damages is going to actually affect some of the genes part of the uh, police and then it won't be able to repair it anymore. So that could happen because you are actually consuming tobacco in one way or another, or you're, you're smoking tobacco cigarettes, or it could happen as part of the normal aging process. So as part of the normal aging process, we constantly accumulate at low levels damages and mutations in every single cell of our body. And this is why we can see very clearly that, you know, we are aging, uh, getting older, and, uh, you know, the, the, the cells are degrading in our body in one way or another. And as part of that thing, some of those cells will lose their repair capabilities, and they, will, they could become cancerous. 
So like the police are also getting older and they can't run as fast. That's correct. That's correct. And this is very prominent actually in certain types of cancer. So colorectal and uterine cancers, about 25 to 30% of those cancers, actually we can clearly see the complete failure of these repair processes. So for one reason or another, they have failed and that has resulted into the cancer. So let's talk about lung cancer and cigarette smoking. Mm. You get mutations that the cell fails to repair. Mm -hmm. Does it have to happen in many cells for a cancer to form or Mm. just like one little cell? How does that work? So all cancers originate from one single cell and that single cell has expanded and it has, you know, it has in one way or another evaded these policing mechanisms and it has started to, to grow out of control and eventually it could heal the person it arises. However, I should say that every single cell of our body, they have 6 billion DNA base pairs inside. And you need to get very, very specific mutations in very specific genes. So you need to hit one very specific, or to disable a very specific set of genes to get cancer development. So if you look at the lung cells of a smoker, when you inhale the tobacco smoke, it's going to damage most cells of the lung. But these damages are going to go into random places. And just by chance, it won't hit in majority of time any of those important policing genes or any of the other important genes related to cancer. But once it hit them, it's sufficient to hit them in one cell. And that cell is going to become, well, it could become cancerous. Now, cancer is by definition a mutation, right? Cancer, when we think about cancer these days, we think of the cancer as a disease of the DNA of a cell. So it's actually the disease that, or the mutations that the cell accumulates inside of its DNA. But not all mutations cause cancer. That's correct. So these are very specific mutations, as you say. And when one cell gets one of those mutations and it starts multiplying, why is it so successful? So for some of them, we don't know. For some of them, we do know. Essentially, in order for the cell to be able to do that, there needs to be several factors that need to align. So first of all, you need to disable all the internal mechanisms inside of the cell. So this policing. But there is also outside policing, such as the immune system. So in one way or another, this needs to be disabled, whether that's done by the cell itself, by reshaping the microenvironment around it, or whether that's done by having a low immunity for one reason or another. So you need to have multiple factors aligned for the cancer to be able to actually develop. It's kind of amazing that there's so much cancer, given Mm. how many mechanisms there are in place to prevent it. Mm. So it is amazing, but also we need to consider that, you know, every single cell of our body is constantly being damaged and repaired. And every single cell is accumulating these mutations at a constant rate. And as you know, cancer, the risk for cancer increases as we age. And that's because we continue to accumulate mutations and eventually they will hit the right genes. So even if there's no external risk factors or lifestyle, eventually every single person will get cancer. And that may be at age 500 or an age 1000. But eventually, just because of the wear and tear of the normal use of our cells, just because we are alive, we will accumulate these mutations. So it is remarkable that our bodies have been optimized and that the majority of cancer that we get are in old age. And also the other thing that when we think about cancer, obviously we shouldn't think of it as one disease. We should think of it as disease of every single cell type that we have in our body. So breast cancers are very, very different than lung cancers, than colorectal cancers, etc. We're talking to Ludmil Alexandrov. 
let's talk about the process of mutation itself. I mean, mutation is how we got here, Mm -hmm. right? We started off as single-celled organisms swimming around Mm -hmm. in the primordial Mm -hmm. soup. And mutation is really very adaptive for bacteria. And Mm. it still is. As Mm. bacteria mutate, they survive in all kinds of ways that they wouldn't if they didn't mutate. Mm. When you have mutation happening in human organisms or in any kind of, you know, mammals or complex organisms, is there a positive and adaptive effect of mutation? When we think about mutations, we need to distinguish two things first. There is mutations that's happening in somatic cells. And somatic cells are the cells in us that you know, from which we cannot generate new offsprings. So the cells of your arm or leg, you know, there won't be a child coming out of them. So you're going to accumulate mutation in these cells and they're going to affect you only as an individual. They won't generate the future generation. And there is also mutations that are accumulating in germline cells. And these are the cells from which you will have the new generations of sperm in men and egg in women. And what you see there is these things could have a negative or a positive effect on the next generation. So they could lead to different disorders or they could potentially lead to more uh, highly intellectual individuals. So you still have that evolution ongoing in every single one of us or these mutations that are ongoing. And, you know, our children will be slightly different than uh, their parents. Just out of curiosity, are children going to be different from their parents because of mutation? Yeah. Or just because of, I mean, mixing of, of the so, so, so vastly the different genes. So, so if, you, if you think about a child, it's a mixture of the genetic material of the biological mother and biological father. However, there are also things that are unique for the child. There are mutations that have accumulated mostly in the sperm of the father and to some extent in the eggs of the mother. And these are things that are different from the mother and the father. And this is actually the small level of of modification that you see in the child. So it won't be copies of the mixture of the genetic material. There'll be slight errors or slight differences in these copies. And sometimes they could be advantageous and sometimes they could be disadvantageous. Let's go back to cancer. Mm -hmm. Does cancer exist in all animals? That's an excellent question. Cancer exists in all mammals that we have known of. We we have quite good records for the, you know, animals we keep close to us. Dogs, cats, cattle, etc. And we know there there is cancer. We also know from a lot of the animals that we have zoos that they will get cancer. But when you start asking all animals, if you ask, do ants get cancer? Do bees get cancer? And if you even go to plants and things uh, and other living organisms, the answer becomes much more complex. And for some of those things, we don't know whether they get cancer. And for some of them, we just don't study them. But the majority of efforts when it comes to cancer are in regards to human beings first, then mice, because we use them as model organisms to test a big chunk of the cancer drugs. And then we look at our domestic animals. So that, that's, that's the way that our knowledge goes. But again, as further away you start going from these organisms, the less we know. Do we know, for example, from the fossil record or from any kind of like history of of mammals Mm. how far back it goes we could i don't so to to the best of my knowledge i I don't i don't think there has been any study of the fossils in regards to cancers in regards to animals Uh, there has been some uh, uh, mummies studied in egypt egypt and they have seen cancers in pharaohs or in 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 humans but this is only four or five thousand years ago right 
but when it comes to did dinosaurs have cancer or did did you have you know animal that is twenty or thirty thousand years uh, old or you know did mammoths get cancer? Um, they, as far as we understand it, they should. Yeah. But do, we don't have any experimental or any observational evidence. Let's go now to talk about your work. You study something called mutational signatures. That's correct. And that means, well, you can tell us what it means. Let, let me see if I understand. When there is a mutation, a mutation that can lead to cancer, it leaves a mark? Close, but not exactly. Let, let me try to explain it. So if you imagine different carcinogens, tobacco smoking is one example, UV light will be another. They could UV leave light meaning sunlight. you get sunlight, you get sunburned, okay. So, uh, yeah, so, so you get sunburned, but you also get damage on the on the on the DNA in your skin cells. Right. Each of the different mutations, there's mutational processes, things that can mutate the cell, and each one of those could leave a unique fingerprint. It could leave a unique fingerprint on the genome of the cell, and we call that unique fingerprint a mutational signature. So when we look at the cancer genome of a of a patient, we actually can see these multiple fingerprints being imprinted by the processes. And you can imagine this is a very much as a molecular CSI type of exercise. You have the a room, in this case, that will be the cancer, and you want to lift the fingerprints, and this will be the mutational signatures, to identify who has been in the room and who has caused the cancer or who have been the felons. And, you know, we can lift the signatures, and for some of them, you know, we have records to say this mutational process due to smoking or to UV light or to viral exposure. Or for some cases, we can see the fingerprint, but we have no idea what has caused it. And we know that there is some, it's important, but we don't know what is the agent. And we have quite a lot of those as well. So what is the nature of that signature? So the nature of the signature is the types of mutations that it generates across the genome. So it's very much a probabilistic type of function across the different types of mutations. And the reason it will generate different types of mutations is because different mutational processes have different biochemistry or biophysics. And just by, by that nature, they're going to damage different bases and they're going to generate slightly different, different patterns. But they're going to be mostly unique and that allows us to distinguish one from another. Will they be unique across the type of cancer or unique from one person to another? They will be preserved in different cancer types, and they will be preserved across dif- mostly preserved across different people. So if the, you have multiple people smoking, we are going to see almost exactly the same fingerprint in each one of them. And also, we can see that fingerprint in lung cancer, but we can also see the, the smoking fingerprint in mouth cancers. So you can see that it's, it's happening in different tissue types. And what that tells you is that this mutational process or this external carcinogen is causing cancer. So what do you do with that information? There's multiple things one can do. My primary interest is in regards to cancer prevention. The work that I do is trying to do this large-scale map of the different processes that cause cancer. And in a way, to use that map to start to inform, in regards to cancer, different prevention strategies. Tobacco smoking, it's an obvious example. UV light is another obvious example. But we have multiple examples of different flowers or different molds or things that just happen inside of the cell that are causing cancer. And for each one of those, we can think or we can at least try to point towards prevention strategies. Now, I should say cancer prevention is very much, it's not only research. I mean, tobacco smoking, again, is the poster child. You know, the research has been clear for many, many years, but there is a lot, a big amount of behavior science, how people behave, policy making, 
and also uh, economics. So there is a lot of things. So the fact that one identifies what are the processes that cause cancer, it doesn't mean you can prevent them, but at least you can point towards what could be prevented. We're talking to Ludmil Alexandrov. Okay, so we know that smoking causes cancer. We've known that for a long time. We don't need mutational signatures to find sure. that out, but it's, you know, it's a marker. What are some of the things that people might not know that mm. cause cancer? I'll give you several examples. One example that people may or may not are viral infections. Viral infections. Viral infections can give you cancer, and the example for that will be cervical cancer. The majority of cervical cancers are caused by HPV infections, but it's not only cervical cancer. HPV, human papilloma virus. Sorry, human papilloma infections due to the human papilloma virus usually transmitted during sexual intercourse. But this human papilloma virus transmission could happen. It also, we can see it in head and neck cancers and penile cancers and anal cancers. And again, this is due to mostly sexual activity. And it works in multiple ways, but the way it actually mutates the cell, first of all, the virus brings its own genes that it, it brings in the cell and it, it speeds up the carcinogenic process, but also the cell tries to fight with the virus and these fighting mechanisms sometimes misfire and they mutate the cell them itself. So you have this internal immunity, autoimmunity of the cell that tries to stop the virus and as a result causes mutations, which again increase your risk for cancer. Now, when it comes to cancer prevention, the HPV vaccines have been extremely successful to actually reduce the, the, the incidence for cervical cancer and for all the other cancer types I mentioned. So this was one of the few examples of actually successfully preventing one type of cancer. So you have viral infections, but you have things that that are much more uh, specific. So you have things such as different plants that can cause cancer. So an example of a plant is the uh, the plants from the family Aristolochia. And this family of plants, uh, they're like green, tall flowers. Uh, and, you know, you may even have them in your garden without knowing that you have them in your garden. And they have something called inside called Aristolochic acid. And this Aristolochic acid is the most potent mutagen. It generates more mutations than smoking and more mutations than UV light. Wait a minute. Okay, so what is this plant? So so it's 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 a whole family of plants. And it's the Aristolochia. Uh, I know, but what, are, what is it called in like a, a name that we would know? I mean, it's a. That's it's, not a it's not a rose. It's not a carnation. Mm, it's not a rose. It's not a carnation. I have to say, I don't know the the layman's name. Okay. I, I know I know the whole family, and also. Because this was thought to be predominantly a regional problem, I know the, the names in different countries. So, in, for example, in Eastern Europe, it will be called it's a specific type of wild ginger. That's one manifestation of this flower. I'm actually not sure. Do we have it here in the it, US? It's the, so it's debatable. Botanists will tell you that there, it is growing here, but the evidence of it causing cancer in the US is much lower than other regions. So how does it cause cancer? You smell the flower, the pollen no, from the it. flower, you eat it. There's two ways that we know right now. One is happening in Eastern Europe. The other one is happening in Southeast Asia. In Eastern Europe, a lot of those plants tend to grow near places with wheat. And when the combined harvest goes, it just, it just takes the plant as part of it. And this is specifically true for countries like Bulgaria, where I'm from, or Romania, because the majority of the wheat fields uh, are near the river Danube, and these plants tend to grow there. So you collect them, and then you make bread. And these things get into the food supply, and they get consumed, and they increase the risk for cancer. So there has been examples of these hidden epidemics of, of liver cancers or kidney cancers due to this plant happening in Eastern Europe. In Southeast Asia, unfortunately, this plant has made itself also as part of some of the Chinese traditional medicine. And one of the main uses is as a weight loss supplement. And there has been clear examples of women taking it as a weight loss supplement 
and then having a very high, uh, some of them got kidney failure, some of them got kidney cancers or liver cancers. If you think about it, and usually you wouldn't think of a plant, something causes cancer, but if you think that there is something that you can consume and can cause cancer, it, it's quite scary. Now, when we look at data from patients from Northern Europe, I'm sorry, Western Europe and North America, we can see that it's in that population as well. We can see it's at about 7 to 10% of the population. We don't know whether that's because these are people who consume Chinese herbal medicine or the, the, who travel to these regions, or it's because something that's being consumed in the food here. However, it is a problem, very large-scale problem in some countries around the world, and it might be a problem in every country to some extent, maybe much less in the, in the developed countries. So this is one example. Another example would be molds, just molds growing on food. And we think refrigeration has actually really reduced, in general, refrigeration has really reduced the risk for cancer. But in some countries, there isn't refrigeration, and they will store corn or maize or peanuts in these big granaries. And it, they'll become moldy. And they, after that, they'll boil them or they'll cook them. But the mold will persist. The example I'm giving is something called aflatoxin. And this mold is going to actually cause liver cancer. And again, it can cause another variety of different cancer types. Now, I should say, this could happen very well into the United States or United Kingdom. There have been reports of peanut butter being recalled for having this aflatoxin mold or for carrots most recently in the United Kingdom being recalled because they were moldy. And again, when we looked at cancers from populations from the United States and Canada, we saw it at about 5 to 10% of patients indeed exhibit this uh, mutational signature or this fingerprint, which means they most likely have consumed moldy food in one form or another. And again, we don't know whether these people have consumed it in the US, whether they have ordered something or whether they have uh, been to Southeast Asia or to other places where there is no refrigeration and have consumed it there. But again, we see it as, a, as another problem that's being, you know, just a hidden epidemic of the things that you eat. Is it all molds? I mean, think about blue cheese. No, I don't think it's, it's all molds. I think it's a very specific set of molds. Uh, it's whole families of molds, but it's not the molds that blue cheese, I think it's as far as I know, at least, it's perfectly safe to consume and very delicious. <laughs> Good to know. Now, the immune system is working very hard all the time. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who think that we have a cancer epidemic in this world because there are just so many more carcinogens around us. There's also other people who say, well, it's not really an epidemic. It's because of modern medicine. We're all living so much longer that we're more likely to get cancer. Mm -hmm. But... If you think about the immune system, it's at work all the time. Let's say we were to eliminate every possible carcinogen from our world. We mm. all go outside covered up so we don't get too much UV light. We don't smoke. We, do, mm. we don't eat moldy food, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make the immune system weak and therefore less, less able to fight cancer when there are those kinds of mutations? So I don't know the answer of this exact question and the reason for that is the immune system is usually getting trained when you have other diseases than cancer infections or whether you have uh, whether they're bacterial or viral infections and if you eliminate all the things that cause cancer whether the immune system will be trained as well as before i i really don't know however i should say that there is something called the bad luck of cancer and, and exactly what you said no matter if you live you have the perfect lifestyle. You're not exposed to any carcinogen. You always have some background trait, some background bad luck, 
which accumulates with age. And again, if you think about it, as we age or as we get older, every single cell of our body, just because we are alive, will accumulate mutations. Now, there is a debate in the community, how much is that bad luck? There is people, the low estimates say that 40% of cancers are preventable. So 40% of human cancers could be completely prevented. The high estimates say that 90%, 90% of cancers are preventable. So the majority of cancers are preventable. And this is an ongoing debate depending of, uh, of the different uh, methodologies and the different uh, approximations that we do. But we know that at least half, in my opinion, of cancers are things that we can prevent. And there are cancers for which there is just bad luck and there is nothing we could do. And some brain tumors might be examples for that. Or at least as of right now, we don't know anything that one can do to reduce their risk for, for brain cancer other than not age. And some people live to be 99 smoking cigarettes sure. and eating M&Ms. So, so that's true. So there is the, the argument whether, we, the, I think it's, we like to refer to as the Winston Churchill diet, you know, smoking cigars all the time and drinking a bottle of whiskey every day and being extremely unhealthy, but b being able to live for a very, very long time without actually being your body being affected. And you can just think about it as this happening by chance. You know, the more bad things you do, the higher the chance you have to get cancer. Now, maybe if your chance to get cancer is 0.1% if you don't do anything bad, you know, this would increase with another 10% or 15%. But actually, very few things increase cancer risk dramatically that we know of. Tobacco smoking is one of the very, very clear examples of that. The work you do, you work in theoretical biology and biophysics. Mm. Do you get around mice and biological tissue and stuff like that? Or are you mostly working with computers? I used to, but these days I mostly work with computers. So there is somebody, I, I collaborate with a lot of people, or whether they're clinicians or whether they're molecular biologists, and many of them generate the actual data. So they'll take the, the samples or the, the cancers from a patient or the cancer from a mouse and then digitalize the different experiments that they do and then as a theoretical biologist or computational biologist, I get this data and I try to think what we can figure out based on it. What is your hope for this work? I want to know which are the processes that we can prevent. I want us to have a roadmap and say, these are the hundred processes that we have. They're the ones that cause the majority of cancer types. And these are what, are what is underlying them. These are the different human behaviors that underlying them. And this is the way, the, and then we can think about prevention. But I, I want, from a research perspective, I want to develop this roadmap of the things that can be prevented in regards to human cancer. How did you get interested in becoming a cancer researcher? That's a good question. I have to say that I come from a very different background. I come from a very computational background. I was in, in the business industry for, for a few years. And then I started being fascinated by biology, by biological problems. But even when I was getting fascinated by biological problems, I didn't think cancer was particularly interesting. And at the time, I don't think I understood it that well. And during my graduate studies, somebody showed me a problem. And that problem was, if you take a cancer patient, can you say what caused the cancer? And I just found it as a... You know, it's a very interesting conundrum. And based on that conundrum, I, I, you know, I have been trying to solve it ever since. You were talking earlier about that plant that causes cancer in certain areas. Are there cancers that are more common in, I mean, other kinds of cancers that are more common in some areas than others? Mm. So it's very, very interesting. Any cancer type that you can think that's common in one place around the world, it's rare in another place. 
So if you think about breast cancer, breast cancer is extremely common in the United States, but it's very, very rare in places like India. And vice versa. Really? Do we know why? We, we do. We have, at least we, we know from a behavioral standpoint, and that's very much related to reproduction. So for every child a woman has under the age of 30, the risk for, uh, for breast cancer reduces for the first four children. And then for every children that gets breastfed, the risk for, for, for again, gets reduced. And from a behavioral point of view, in the United States, women are having children much, much later, and in India, they're having children much earlier. But there's other examples for that. So, for example, prostate cancer is very, very common in Nordic countries, and I think it's almost 100 times higher than prostate cancer in some places in South America. And there, we don't know what causes that. And again, one can give such examples for almost every single type of human cancer. And what these examples tell us is that they're most likely lifestyle and environmental factors that we can prevent and we can reduce the cancer. So to address this issue, what we're trying to do at the moment is we're doing a very large, very global study. We're going to look at 5,000 cancer patients from more than 20 different countries, exactly with this type of disparities where uh, you have at least 10 times difference in the risk for cancer. And we're trying to see what causes that. What are the molecular mechanisms? Why do we see that? And... Knowing what those those fingerprints are, those signatures, can help with that. Yes, and we're going to couple that with, with a lot of epidemiology. So we're going to have very detailed epidemiological information, which will allow us to actually understand better some of those signatures. Whether some of those things, so there have been speculations that drinking tea that's too hot could cause specific types of esophageal cancers. So we're actually going to know the temperature of the tea that people were drinking in certain parts of the country. There has been a hypothesis that there is a relationship to BMI, body mass index, and their relationship to previous disease, such as whether you have diabetes. And for some of them, the, the epidemiology is very clear, but we need to actually, we can actually dig and see whether that's, whether it makes much difference from a molecular perspective, whether you eat vegetables, whether you eat predominantly meat, whether you eat a mixed diet. So we're going to try to have these questionnaires for people to actually understand how their lifestyle affects these large geographical disparities. But I should also say, in addition to geographical disparities, so these are things that happen around the world, in this country, in the United States, you can see that as well. You can see different risks for different cancer types could be two to three times different in some states and in some populations. And the example for that is African-American women and men having much higher risk for prostate and breast cancer. And again, Native Americans having significantly higher risk for liver cancers or gallbladder cancers. So you see these populations or these areas of the countries that for one reason or another are having more cancer. The last thing that I think is very fascinating is time trends. So if you look at time, how cancer changes, one of the things that people don't realize is liver cancers has, in the last few decades has increased almost, has almost doubled in this country. And we don't know why. And stomach cancer has decreased. So we are doing things without knowing that we are doing these things. We are changing, you know, we are consuming stuff that are improving some things and making some things worse. And again, we don't really understand it. So by this type of molecular profiling with detailed epidemiology, we hope to shed a light. Now, there is some evidence that some kinds of cancers are actually infectious, like transmissible from that's one correct. being so to in, another. In humans, that's very rare. 
it, there have been reports of surgeons performing surgeries and cutting themselves during the surgeries and getting the patient's cancer. Oh but, the, but these are very, very... Well, and one of the reasons we think it's so rare in humans is we don't exchange cells. So if you think about it, there is very, very few occasions that people exchange actual cells between each other. But that's not true for some animals. So Tasmanian devils and dogs are the two examples two mammalian examples, I should say, where there is transmissible cancers. So there is a cancer that arose in one animal, and that cancer has been jumping from one animal to another. So in Tasmanian devils, that happens when they fight. So they actually attack each other, they bite themselves on the face, and when they bite themselves on the face, the cancer jumps from one of the Tasmanian devils to the other. Now, because of this transmissible cancer, the Tasmanian devil population is actually almost extinct or is very much in danger from extinction. And this is a cancer that's becoming an infectious agent. Wow. And it's very deadly and it metastasizes very fast and kills the, uh, the, the thing. But it's one cancer that arose in one animal that jumps. In dogs, there has been something that we believe happened 11,000 years ago. So at the time, there probably wasn't, were not dogs, there were wolves. And one of those wolves got a cancer. And actually, this is a venereal tumor that gets transmitted in dogs during sex. And it jumps from one dog on another, and for the last 11,000 years, has gone uh, all across the world. And we can clearly see it, and the cancer has evolved and adapted, so it has actually increases the libido of dogs to transmit it better. So it has become a parasite, in a way. But you can see these examples in animals, and there's also new examples that people have found in clumps, so you have seen things getting into, into clamps from uh, shellfish, and uh, I, I don't think we understand what the transmission is, whether fish transmits it or something else. Uh, there's examples in laboratory settings in Chinese hamsters. So there, there's cancers that are infectious. And again, we don't see that much in human beings, or we see that very, very rarely, but it can happen in other organisms. In dogs, if you spay and neuter your dog, does then that prevent the... Uh, that particular so, so I think in, in dogs especially when you do something like that yes absolutely uh, this is mostly a big problem when it comes to homeless dogs or to dogs in the shelter it is possible for the cancer to have transmitted but I should say this cancer the dog cancer it's not deadly it doesn't uh, affect them in any way other than increasing their libidus but it's you know I said it has become more of a benign parasite that just transmits through the dog population what do you do to maintain a lifestyle that's healthy so that, he, I mean, do you think about this for your own self? I do, yes. I don't do much. So that is the unfortunate part. <laughs> I don't smoke and I almost don't drink. And both of those things are not, you know, the non, the big known carcinogens. Alcohol? Yeah. So alcohol is very much related to liver cancer. Right. But and also the other thing is breast cancer in women. For And again, we don't understand how that happens, but epidemiologically it's one of the most clear relationships. But again, there's very little things. So how can I have lower risk for prostate cancer and cancer is we don't know. We really don't know what one should do, what a man should do to have a lower risk for prostate cancer. There are several things that are recommended and that one, one should do, and I should say I am not that good at doing them. And one of them is to exercise, to be active for at least a few hours a day, which I don't do, or to, to maintain a high vegetable diet and, and low sugar diet. And again, I'm not that good at doing that as well. And unfortunately, I think it's hard to be good unless you have started doing that from an early childhood time. So when we talk of cancer prevention, I'm, most of the time I'm thinking for you know, young children, when we, if we understand and we have clear evidence that something could reduce their risk for cancer, to, uh, to be trying to introduce more healthier snacks in schools or, or more healthier options for them. 
and let them run around. And let them run around, yes. No matter what makes them run around, whether it's playing the Pokemon game or doing something, but just make them move more, yes. Ludmil Alexandrov is... Uh, <clears throat> Ludmil Alexandrov is Oppenheimer Fellow in Theoretical Biology and Biophysics at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. Please check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. We're on Twitter at Radio Cafe MC and at facebook.com slash radiocafe. Many thanks to Steady Networks, providing managed IT solutions and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at steadynetworks.com, and they are part of Dotfoil Computer Services of Santa Fe, where I myself have been bringing my computer for many years, and they are awesome. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.